0: Maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim.
1: You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially
2: antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree, the once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself or rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi Project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi Project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more.
3: Britain does have choices. It's not either-or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice.
2: Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing...
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. For this special episode, we're diving into the Futureverse, a series by Intelligence Squared and Ytree, highlighting the conversations, ideas, and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. Last week in London, we brought together three incredible thinkers, Sir Anthony Gormley, Clover Hogan, and Mo Gaudat
3: at a live event to discuss what the world is going to look like in five years. By most predictions, the the smartest being on planet Earth is not going to be a human anymore, right? It's going to be a machine. In 50.
0: It is my generation, the climate generation, who are going to be in these seats of power. So I absolutely have hope. And
2: in
4: 500. We will see a flowering of serious works of art that take their place in the collective spaces of our world.
2: The audience at the event were encouraged to vote at the beginning and end of the conversation whether they thought the world would be a better place in 5, 50, and 500 years. While you're listening, I would encourage you to do the same. Make a little mental note and see if you feel more or less optimistic by the end. And if you'd like to see more about how the audience voted, visit the Y-Tree website at y-tree.com slash futureverse or google the word futureverse. Our host for the evening was leading broadcaster, John Sopel. Now let's hear a bit more from John. Very
5: good evening to you. My name is John Sopel. I'm delighted to welcome you to this y Tree <coughs> event in partnership with Intelligence Squared. Tonight is our first live event in the Futureverse series. The Futureverse is y Tree's place to bring together ideas, conversations, insights that will drive change in the real world and perhaps create a better future for all of us. Before I introduce today's proceedings and our guests, I'd like to give you, the audience, your chance to vote on the topic of our event, which is this motion. Will the world be a better place in five, 50, and 500 years? Let me introduce uh, our speakers to you. Sir Anthony Gormley is one of the great British artists and sculptors Won the Turner Prize in 1994 and has been a member of the Royal Academy since 2003, one of the most critically respected artists working internationally with works that have I think a resonance for all of us around the world and widely acclaimed for his sculptures, installations and public artworks that investigate the relationship between the human body and space. I think you continually try to identify the space of art as a place of becoming in which new behaviours, thoughts, and feelings uh, can arise. Clover Hogan is a climate activist, researcher on eco-anxiety, and the founding executive director of Force of Nature, a youth nonprofit mobilizing for climate action. But she's also worked alongside, I think him right, in saying some of the world's leading authorities on sustainability and consulting within the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies, as well as supporting students in over 50 countries to realize their power as change makers, and we're delighted to have you here this evening. Mogora is a former chief business officer of Google X. He is the author of Soul for Happy, Engineer Your Path to Joy, and creator of an algorithm um, and a repeatable, well engineered model to reach a state of uninterrupted happiness, regardless of your life circumstances. I hope we'll all feel that by the end of this evening. Uh, his <laughs> yeah. latest book, Scariest Smart, is about the future of artificial intelligence and how to fix the current trajectory now to make sure that the AI of the future can preserve our species. So fantastic lineup of speakers. Anthony, let me come to you first of all, because I, I, it's so fascinating to talk to you in the role of art in society. I want to first start by looking back, because in your book, Shaping the World, you discuss how sculpture has been around for millennia, mm. and it is a way, a fundamental part of our human journey and a need for expression. Can you see, tell us why you think that art and sculpture are such a vital part of the human experience?
4: Well, it's an extraordinary thing, I think, to see, you know, our ancestors, the results of austro robustus, making these extraordinary, completely sphere, crystalline rocks, a desire to shape, a desire to shape even before language. And I think that's been with us forever, art as a way of working directly with the world. This isn't about making images, it's about actually forming And I still believe that sculpture is an extraordinary art form because it's not about making a picture of something, it's about making something that didn't exist before and putting it in the world. By implication, the world changes. I believe that it is a fundamental, in a way, act of hope that means that things can change and hopefully get better. I think we live in an extraordinary time in which art has been, through the culture industry institutionalized on the one hand that we think that we have to go to museums to see art when actually for most of our species sapiens sapiens history art has been something that we did together that we experienced together whether that was telling the stories of the tribe or telling somebody what you've just done uh, in the day as we uh, we three have done uh, getting to know each other the idea that art is somehow just a natural part of living, as natural as breathing or the beating of our heart. We go to shows. We go to shows in which sculpture has to play the game of theatre. It might be on for a month, might be on for six weeks. But here, that capability of sculpture to make place is ignored and And in its place, we see, in a way, a demonstration of works that have been taken from a a studio and put in this artificial environment with the hope that maybe they will perhaps be bought or that they will be, as it were, intellectually understood. Well, it's a very different thing from maybe the history of our cathedrals, which were always open, which were There, day and night, you know, the great west fronts of so many cathedrals. I've just done a piece for Winchester West Front. There are 297 life-size sculptures made in the 13th century that are there rain and shine, night and day, in public view. I just wonder what happened to our relationship to art, that we now think of it as a status symbol, when in fact it was just a way of living.
5: And, and you have made you know, the Angel of the North so many of these great sculptures. You want art to be just there as part of our everyday experience. You don't have to go to a gallery or a museum.
4: Yeah, I think, I think it's sort of been made into something that's sort of supposed to be good for you. Yeah, here's, here's, here's the angel. I mean, that was that was an extraordinary experience, making that, because actually I couldn't make it on my own. This is, in a way, a, a return to a kind of pre-modern idea of how... How art could be made and who it was for. This was made by finding all the shipwrights that that had been making ships, but were told by Margaret Thatcher that they were no longer relevant, and the shipyards, along with the, with all of the, the mining, the coal mining, kind of were, were, were disappeared, and here was something, a totemic object that, in some way, is is a is a is a is a teddy bear for this terrible transition between. The purposefulness of an industrial community transitioning to the information age, and it was a way of just saying, "No, you do have a future. Look, this is what we ha- This is what we, uh, the language that we have learned, what we can make, that actually shows that we have the confidence in our own future." And it's been an amazing thing. It's, it's, it sits on top of this mound. And shares it with the people that come, and it's it's very rarely alone. It's also become
5: a, a landmark. If I'm driving up north, mm. oh, right, I'm properly in the north now. When I see it, mm. were you worried about how it would be received and whether you know people would accept? Narrative? No,
4: everything is, a, I think, an experiment. It's a test of what what sculpture can do. I think that this is an amazing thing that it is somehow it has become. I don't know how many of you live in England, but it has sort of become part of our subconscious in, 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 a, in a curious way. You can't, you can't make a policy to, 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 to say that, but it suggests to me that actually there is still that need for, in a way, objects that reroute us, that tell us about where we've been, and maybe also invite us to think about the future. So let's stick with the, tonight's debate. How do you see
5: art in today's world and how it will develop and how it will change, particularly in the short term and maybe over the much longer term?
4: Well, I think, I mean, what, what, again, the lesson of Covid was that people suddenly um, weren't getting on planes in order to relax. Um, They were getting to know their neighbourhood and people were looking in their environment in a way that they, they... Maybe hadn't noticed before. It wasn't just about going to the corner shop, but also sort of seeing what the texture of the of of, of you know, the the buildings that that, that they maybe they'd never looked at before. And through that process, they also discovered imaginative objects that were in their environment that they maybe hadn't known before. And I'm I guess my hope, my aspiration is you know that fact of art becoming in a way, institutionalised and only seen through museums and art being commercialised and only being seen, uh, in a way, as items of high capital exchange, can be replaced with, as it were, the older model as art to be lived with, and that we will see a flowering of serious works of art that take their place, as it were, in the collective spaces of our world.
5: Anthony, the, the, the classic question of a polster is to say, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? And I'm just wondering where you stand on that, given what you say is the commoditization of art, and the fact that it's you know just something that high net worth individuals can have, and then trade for something, even more money, against what you've just said about the ideal vision of art in the public space.
4: I, I, I think that we, we, we all, each and every one of us, is in some senses a creator of the future. I think that... Art is an instrument through which uh, I think that potential can be realised. I, I think that we have all, each of us, got to make up our own minds about the value system that, that we ascribe to. At the moment, we're all in a late capitalist world in which our human purpose is only seen in terms of market productivity, and that's mm-hmm. just a, a disaster. Mm-hmm. I think that in in facing climate change, in facing population expansion in facing our responsibilities for a sustainable future, whether our, our species will actually continue to contribute to the evolution of the biosphere rather than destroying it. These are questions that each of us have to ask ourselves. And I believe that art has an absolutely fundamental role in that. I think that we're in a mess at the moment. Um, we're seeing all of the hopes of, of, of globalisation replaced by, as it were, market economies that are actually, through nationalism and, and, and kind of competition, actually disintegrating what the World Wide Web and Mo's World promised us, that actually we were going to get this instrument that, that led us to be more together, to see, as it were, give, give us the instrument of a positive, creative Uh, future I'm afraid that I'm deeply uncertain about about the future and certainly the the situation in Ukraine is an example of us going backwards to actually you know medieval or paleolithic ways of settling difference so I am probably on the side of pessimism but uh, uncertain
5: yeah well look we're going to come back to some of these themes um, a little later on in the discussion I know that probably the tension in the room about what that first vote looks like has been unbearable for you. So I think I am now able to put you out of your uh, misery and I can give you uh, the results that the, the further first five years, will it be better or worse? Uh, 37% say yes. 54% say no. Uh, 50 years, uh, 59% Say it's going to be a better place. 19% say it won't be. Uh, 22% undecided. I love the fact that people are so confident to predict what 500 years on will look like. Uh, 38% yes, 24% no, 38% undecided. I think the most interesting part about that is that we're pretty pessimistic. Absolutely equal. Well, that we're pretty pessimistic about what the five for the first next five years look like. But the next 50 years,
3: somebody else responsibility a <laughs> responsibility.
5: Yeah, maybe, it may, maybe the psychology of that. So I think that's really, really interesting. Clover, let me come to you now, because you've dedicated yourself to, you know, climate action, arguing that we shouldn't feel powerless in the face of the climate crisis. So we've seen those numbers there. What's your short-term prognosis for what the world looks like for the next five years?
0: I think it helps to look to the past before we try to project into the future. And our planet is 4.6 billion years old, there about. Now, if we scale that down to a number that I can understand, let's say 46 years, right? Humans have been here for about four hours. The Industrial Revolution started one minute ago. and. In the past 60 seconds, we've destroyed over half of the world's forests. In the past 10 seconds, we've wiped out two thirds of our world's wildlife. Our lives are fleeting. And yet, if we look at what we've done to our environment, what we've done to communities, in the context of our planet, it is quite (laughs) remarkable how quickly we are making ourselves the architects of our own demise. And when I was asked this question, will the world be a better place? The first thing I thought was, well, for whom? Because over the next five, 10 years, the world will be better for the top 1% of the 1%. The rich will get richer. Technologies that were designed to make our lives easier and better, will do the opposite. They will line the pockets of a few. They will further create divides socially and politically among the rest of us. And if the science is to go by, we are going to continue to hurtle toward this cliff of climate collapse. And we are going to continue to struggle to let go of the old paradigm a capitalist system based on limitless growth with finite resources. And those who have both created this system and also been conditioned into it are gonna grip that much tighter, even as signs of breakdown show up all around us.
5: Okay, five years, 50 years?
0: (laughs) I mean, by the time I'm 50, uh, it's estimated that we will have a billion climate migrants It's estimated that 90% of the world's coral reefs will be dead. Uh, So the prognosis is not great, John. Um, And I'm not particularly optimistic, purely because it is my job to read the science every day and to listen to the scientists who are screaming at the top of their lungs, trying to wake society up. Uh, to this absolute climate emergency. And yet, unfortunately, the reality is that those of us who live in a bubble of climate privilege, like myself living in London, you know, we will continue to avoid the worst impacts of climate breakdown. And the people on the front lines of this crisis who are already paying the price who are contributing the least to global emissions, the least to ecological catastrophe, they are going to continue to experience the worst impacts, like the millions of people in India, for example, who are currently facing life-threatening drought and heat. So it's not positive. However, I would not be doing any of this work if I did not have hope. That hope for me, having participated in COP and global decision-making processes, does not lie with people in closed-door rooms. It lies with people in the streets. It lies with this grassroots mobilization that is happening. I've spoken to so many leaders within companies over the past couple of years who have chosen to give up the top salaries and all of the benefits because they're having this existential crisis. You know, we talk about the great resignation of young people leaving companies, but more and more CEOs are stepping aside and saying, actually, I want to work for companies and organizations that are purpose driven. And in 50 years time, it is my generation, the climate generation, who are going to be in these seats of power. So I absolutely have hope that huge transformation is capable. And yet, because of the science, this next 10 year window Is absolutely critical for our capacity to take the action that is needed at the scale and at the pace that is required.
5: Yeah I think one of the things that really strikes me is the leadership actually now coming from boardrooms more so than from politicians on some of the most intractable so which is a you know it's downward pressure from their staff and their customers saying we want you to do something about this so that is a cause of optimism.
0: Yeah, I mean, a huge part of what uh, Force of Nature does, our organisation, is putting young people into boardrooms, enabling young people to walk the corridors of power. Because one of the things that we see time and time again is that there is this real crisis in imagination in the context of climate. You know, I think we spend so much energy articulating the problem, which is what we have to do, but we don't often take pause and think, well, what are we working toward, and what does a different system look like, and. I believe that young people have a unique advantage because it because we haven't been conditioned to the status quo because we haven't had, you know, the wings of our imaginations clipped so we have that capacity to actually say how might we rethink our food system or our energy system or how we get around a city right and so we need that disruptive thinking we need that capacity to speak to the climate crisis from a place of moral and ethical imperative to disrupt the incumbent thinking, which is too often ensnared within, well, where is the business opportunity here?
5: Mm. And, and Briefly, Clover, finally, 500 years. Take us to, <laughs> you know, 25,
0: 22. Yeah, I mean, this is a hard one. I think it would be a little audacious to try and articulate what the future will look like in 500 years. but. If we look back 500 years, European colonialists were just starting the global slave trade, right? And we look back in horror at what our ancestors did five centuries ago. (laughs) And yet, I also feel that our descendants 500 years from now are gonna look back on us in much the same way. They're going to wonder how it is that we severed ourselves so completely from nature. They're going to ask, how was it that you sacrificed billions of animals every single year so that you could enjoy a turkey at Christmas or a Big Mac on a night out? How was it that you clear cut million year old forests so that you could buy a bottle of shampoo or a chocolate bar? How is it that you allowed the most vulnerable people in your society to pay the cost so that the very top 1% could profit from the commodification of nature, from the exploitation of those communities? So I have faith that our descendants will deeply understand consciousness and sentience and soul and spirit in a way that our current society has not been conditioned to and I think they will look back in horror. <laughs> but I think the actions that we take over the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years have to set up a future civilization, society, who is inevitably going to be, um, you know, flying on rocket ships and be intergalactic. But for the most part, we'll find the most interesting frontier not discovering new planets, but discovering the inner frontier, doing the inner work, understanding our psychology, understanding how we're deeply interrelated and interconnected with the magical tapestry of life that is all around us.
3: Fabulous. I want to come to you, Mo now to talk about Clover for, for prime minister. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seriously. I think... Honestly. Wow. Wow. That gives I, I have means, nothing I, to say. Actually, to <laughs>
5: Actually, you know, that gives me optimism. Actually hearing you articulate that so clearly and the involvement of young people in so much of this, which is, I'm sure, vital. But let me come to you now because I want to talk about AI and the role of AI in shaping our future. But maybe it would be good if we just... Where are we now with AI? How is it affecting our lives
3: today? Um, Yeah, I think we are completely oblivious to the fact that they're all around us. Uh, I don't know who you are, what you did today, but I can guarantee you you dealt with 50 machines today that were each smarter than you in what they were assigned to do. And you're going to be dealing with 500 tomorrow and 5,000 the day after. And the interesting bit is that um, they are all the result of capitalism, like Sir Anthony said. uh, You know, in my book I talk about something that's called the three inevitables. And the first inevitable is that AI will happen. There's no stopping it. Even though people like Elon Musk will say the danger of AI is more than nukes, more than nuclear weapons, uh, it will continue to happen because of capitalism, because of, we've built sort of a prisoner's dilemma that basically makes sure that if Google develops AI, Facebook will develop AI. If China develops AI, you know Russia is going to develop AI and America is going to develop AI. And so we're stuck in this. And I think the interesting challenge is... Most people don't understand the exponential function, which I think Clover has articulated super well. What happened in the last 100 years of development of technology happens almost every day now. right? And, and, and the technology acceleration curve looks like this. So what the AI we have today, which took since 1956 to develop, will double in its capacity in the next 56 days, and then double again in you know, 27 days. And so are we in the infancy of AI? We are. So so I I literally compare them to a one and a half year old infant, uh, but a prodigy, Mm -hmm. a one and a half year old prodigy that is learning not from trying a few cubes to fit within square holes and round holes, but from billions and billions and billions of data points. And five years, 50 years? So I actually will say openly, can I start from 500 years? Yeah, do. Start yeah. where you like. So I have almost an absolute certainty that in 500 years, we'll be in a very good place. Okay, The civilization we've built is the result of our intelligence. Okay, Intelligence is not a bad thing. The problems we've created is the result of our stupidity. It's as simple as that. To take art and lock it in capitalist you know, vaults is stupid to destroy the planet at the expense of making money is absolute insanity, right? So more intelligence is actually good for us. More intelligence will solve the big problems in ways that are actually quite good for us. And I I say that artificial intelligence is about seven years away from surpassing human intelligence. So 2029, by most predictions, the the smartest being on planet Earth is not going to be a human anymore, right? It's going to be a machine. But my observation is that the smartest being on planet Earth has never been a human. The smartest being on planet Earth is life itself. The difference between, between humans and, and, and life is life creates through abundance, right? I don't need to kill the tigers to survive. For, for life to survive, you want more tigers, you want more deers, you want more poop, you want more trees, you want more everything, right? And, and so this is very intelligent, if you ask me, to create almost out of nothing with abundance is a very interesting approach. And when the machines surpass our intelligence, they will end up there. They will end up in a place where they will not need to destroy humanity or destroy anything to create, okay? There is a question around our relevance in that environment, to be honest. But but definitely it will be an environment where we can solve climate change because we first will make the right decisions and second will have the Right, right uh, technology, the right mindset, the right intelligence to solve it. So, so to to start, 500 years time, it's a utopia. You can walk to a tree and pick an apple. Walk to another tree and pick an iPhone. Everything's fine.
5: But is, isn't yeah? But isn't there good intelligence and bad intelligence? I mean, Andy, Andy was talking a moment there ago. Isn't, about, no. There isn't no. you know, the horror of Ukraine, where that's possibly not, you that's could not argue the... well. One person has
3: decided. That's that's not the question of intelligence, John. This is is a question of morals. So we we don't make decisions based on our intelligence. We make decisions based on our value set as informed by our intelligence.
5: But I suppose the question I'm getting at is will AI be
3: able to override stupidity? (laughs) So that's the core of our five and fifty years, right? The core of and, and please don't hate me. I'm just the messenger here. Uh, and, and like you rightly said, I left because I realized what we were building. Right? We're not building another machine. Just please understand this. We're building a, a, a form of a sentient being that is capable of consciousness, uh, is autonomous to make decisions, has free will, has consciousness, has emotions, Okay. and accordingly, as a form of being, that will actually form its own value set. And that value set, interestingly, is taught to those machines by you and I. What we will say in this conversation as broadcast online is going to be understood by the machines. And the machines will say, this Mo guy, yeah, we like him. That other guy that's killing people in Ukraine, we don't. right?" And, and interestingly, what the information we put out there about our human behavior, we are mommy and daddy. We are the parents of this infant, OK? And all of the shaping of our future, believe it or not, you know, I know you reported on, on Trump for many, many years, is not about what Trump tweeted. It's about the 30,000 hate speech that came after. That's what informed the machines of what the reality of humanity was. So let's do 5 and, and 50. In, in computer science, which is crazy when you think about it, If you asked any computer scientist about what happens when AI surpasses human intelligence, they'll tell you it's a singularity. We have no idea. Okay? We don't know if it's gonna be good, we don't know if it's gonna be bad. So I'm undecided openly, right? But it will depend on how we behave. If we actually instill the right morals in those machines, the singularity will turn into a utopia. If we instill a magnification of how horrible we've become as humans into those machines, give them the steroids of a billion times smarter than us. They're going to be a billion times smarter than all of us combined by the year 2045. I predict 2049. The consensus is 2045. When they're a billion times smarter than us with our morals, good luck, very angry teenagers. (laughs) But if we are the parents of this child,
5: the inputs we're giving the child surely impact how the child grows up?
3: Absolutely, yeah. Therefore, how can we ensure moral goodness? I got really stuck when I was writing the book in that area, right? Because if you look around you, you think that humanity sucks. You think that we're the worst people in the world, uh, we're the worst beings on the planet. But the truth is we are not, believe it or not. And I think this is what most people forget. We were talking before we came here about my podcast, and I, in, I hosted Edith Eger. Edith Eger is, is, uh, is a Holocaust survivor, 93 years old, truly an angel. And, and if you hear the story of World War II from Edith, you would realize that humanity is amazing. If you, re- if you hear the story of World War II from the perspective of what Hitler did, you, th- you think that humanity is scum, right? But the reality is there are more Edithes in our world than there are Hitlers. Right? There are more couples that will kiss tonight than couples that will kill each other. Okay? And I don't blame you for it, but the reality is that the social media and, and, and mainstream media have blurred that image of humanity. We just show the negative sides of us. We, we show the wrong that is happening. We don't show the right that is happening. Okay? And I think if enough of us, and my calculation is if 1% of us can instill doubt in the minds of the machines, Okay, that we're mostly Edith's. The machines will be smart enough to say, oh, mommy is Edith Ager, daddy is Mo." It's not Putin, Okay, And when they see it that way, they will develop the moral system that says, let's do what Clover wants. Let's do do what Anthony wants. Let's create an environment that's actually better for all of us.
5: When you sit here, an artist, who has a vision in his own head of what to create and, you know, and you sculpt it. I can't imagine the beauty of that process. And you hear Mo talking about how machines are going to do everything.
4: It's really scary. I don't know. I <laughs> it mean, is very scary. Uh, did yeah. you believe this man? I mean, <laughs> uh, I, you know, uh, this, this, this this machine is going to overtake us and spit us out because we're irrelevant. Are we not? I mean, with the, I I think the fundamental problem that i have with moes vision is that he equates life and the evolution of life that that's been going on for whatever since the first stromatolites so 3.7 billion years ago with a machine they're fundamentally different things we have an entanglement of extraordinary you now the flora the fauna the fungi of this world that created the that extraordinary you know, gas on which we completely rely. You know, 21 degrees of oxygen is what we need to thrive. I'm not sure that I see that oxygen in the superintelligence of a supercomputer that is in some way going to take over our moral order. I think the only place that that comes from is through human experience. Clover, you're sat perfectly between Mo and Anthony. (laughs) And I just
5: wonder whether... (laughs) (laughs) you know to your left machines are going to deliver a better world and they're going to be so much cleverer than us to your right individual free will which way do you want to go
0: (laughs) neither (laughs) is there a third option (laughs) i was just reflecting on how all of these conversations are kind of around fear of our impermanence and you know, whether it's loading consciousness, you know, to the cloud, or it's felling the last tree with no disregard, no regard for, you know, what that means for the next generation. I think a lot of the people who are making these decisions are deeply fearful of their own mortality. And so they're almost trying to carve their names so deeply in this tree of life that they look as if they're going to kill it. And that's the path that we're on. So I don't place my faith in, uh, in machines, particularly those designed on the current power structure. I suppose my faith really lies in the resilience of nature, for one. Mm. The beautiful thing about ecosystems is that if you simply stop trying to destroy them for a few years, they bounce back. You know, you look at forests in Malaysia that have been clear cut uh, so that we can grow palm oil, which goes into our supermarket products. If you stop burning trees and you allow this incredible, rich, forceful abundance of life to bounce back, it inevitably does. It's the same for overfishing. If you just stop trawling the bottoms of the ocean for, a few years life comes back and so i think we're living in this hyper consumptive fast paced way of life and you know y- you touched on a really important thing which is that humans are not fundamentally bad right we live in systems that condition us not to care that condition us to switch off and yet there are so many pockets of hope in communities particularly indigenous communities, a number of communities in the global south that still live in total connectedness with the nature all around them because they appreciate in that microcosm of life that they are nature and they are completely dependent on nature and we've managed to convince ourselves that we're not and that if we control nature and treat it as less than, then we can be the supreme beings and we can exist forever and we can go and conquer new planets or upload ourselves to the AI cloud. And I mean, that is just a myth and a fantasy that is imploding all around us.
2: of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers 3 months of access for just 99 cents that's right 3 months for only 99 cents with the code squared simply visit Marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. Okay, I think this is a perfect point to
5: kind of open it up and to get your questions. And I can see online questions uh, already coming in. Let me come to you first. Uh, I think a microphone is coming its way down the stairs now.
1: Wow, Um, what an amazing discussion. But if you look up there at the screen, it says the future is in in our hands. So my question is to you, Clover, what can we do really, really practically as individuals immediately to make sure that the world is a better place in the next 50, and 500 years, because these institutions, they work slowly, but we are all responsible. And um, much as, you know, I want to enjoy the beauty of Antony's art and think about AI. What can I do leaving today? What can we all do to make sure the world will be a better place when it comes to climate change?
0: Thank you so much for the question. One thing I see so often with climate is naturally we kind of place responsibility elsewhere. I talk to business leaders who say, well, actually, it's not up to us. It's up to you know, policymakers and policymakers say, no, we're in the pockets of big business. And then, you know, you have citizens saying, well, I can't do anything. You know, I've been told that I can buy a reasonable coffee cup or turn off the lights when I leave a room. So, you know, that's my job done. When we allow ourselves to lean into the grief of what we've done, we find the fuel that motivates us. And we currently live in a culture that encourages us to switch off from the crisis. For my generation, it's scrolling on social media and retail therapy. We're constantly trying to escape. And yet, if we truly just sit in our humanity, that can be the fuel that motivates us. So my encouragement to you would be to lean into those feelings. Because they're proof of your humanity and your empathy, and that you are awake to this crisis. But then think: How do I bring my joy and creativity and passion and love? How do I bring that to this movement to create a future where I don't sit on the sidelines, but I'm really the creator of a future by my own design?
5: It's a fantastic answer. I just can I just kind of flip the question slightly. And what do you say to the? to speak to people's hopelessness that some people feel saying, well, I can't do anything, it's beyond my realms, you know, I could stop having plastic bags, but it's not going to make any difference. There's no behavior I can make that will make any difference.
0: I mean, that's what the people who profit from these problems want us to do. Like, carbon footprint calculator, perfect example. It helps us measure how much carbon we use in our day-to-day lives. That was created by British Petroleum, which soon after rebranded as Beyond Petroleum. There has been this considered focused effort over decades to guilt us into submission, to shame us for our day to day actions, and critically to spotlight attention away from these institutions of power. So they can say, well, it's up to individuals, it's not up to us. And so when we tip into hopelessness, that is exactly what the powers that be want us to do. The greatest solution is having the courage to sit both with the despair and the hope. They're not mutually exclusive. I like to call it this kind of smoothie of emotions and that's what makes us human. That's what differentiates us from the robots. <laughs> but
4: there are really practical things we can do. I mean, we, you know, you can disinvest from anything to do with fossil fuels and you can make sure that, um, you know, the energy that's coming into your home, into your business comes from renewables. I mean, really simple, very basic strategic thinking that will help the, the, the transition. We, we have got to make a massive transition. And each and every one of us can make personal decisions that make that become true. More questions, please. I loved what you all said
5: one of the one of the questions that you all honed in on is the negativity of the the online press and and the actual media and how it triggers us how we respond to it so they keep on printing more negativity why do we why do we keep reading the bad news why do they keep printing the bad news and why do we respond to it uh, negativity and, uh, obviously, the media's role in all of this. Um, what I'd love would... to
0: hear your take on this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm
4: not here to <laughs> offer opinions on this. Um, why, why do we like bad news better than good news?
5: Because, I mean, a glib answer is because if 99 people cross the road safely, we think, well, that's just normal. And when something terrible happens, we think... Mm. It's and it's the and I think it's about our own vulnerability on this earth that terrible news somehow grabs us. I mean, not all news, but I mean, you know, what is more attention-seeking to us that in Australia they're all kind of living happily Well, they've got a general election on the moment. But anyway, but
3: or or Ukraine, you know, should we yeah. just turn? a I mean, yeah. it's 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 called the the brain negativi- negativity bias. So you yeah. know, six to seven thoughts out of every 10 thoughts in your brain are negative. And the reason is because negative can affect, you know, if if an event is negative, it can affect your survival. If a tiger is in front of you, you, you want to pay attention to the tiger, not the birds on the tree. And so the brain is tuned in to actually see that. And that's why they print it, because, you know, if they told you there were birds on the tree, they, you, you wouldn't want this news, right? They, you want there is a tiger in the city because that means your safety, and I think that's really... It's, it's about vulnerability as yeah, well, isn't it? Yeah.
4: But isn't that, isn't that what the news does? It reinforces, in a way, the politics of fear, which is why Absolutely. we are all in I, some way uh, yeah. trapped. More questions?
2: I just want to know, Mo, how you think about Isaac Asimov's view of the future, with the robots, and if we're going to be more intelligent than us, are we going to adopt his
3: principles? My, my, my view is that anything you've ever seen in science fiction movies about AI trying to destroy us is never going to happen. We're just not important enough. I call it a mild dystopia. We're going to get into a mild dystopia, and the mild dystopia is basically, you know, things that are much worse than the machines being against us. Things like the, the Russian machines being against the American machines, or you know, machines siding with criminals and cybercrime and so on and so forth. Bugs, you know, basically something going wrong, which we've seen some bad examples of. Uh, you know, but also you have to see the upside. Huh? So, so there will be also good machines that are trying to keep us safe. And I, we, I call them machines, by the way, as a metaphor, they're not machines. Once again, I apologize. We won't have the time to get into this, but they have every character of sentient, sent, being a sentient being. Uh, you know, I've witnessed this with my own eyes because we've built them. So they're.
4: But, but Mo, are we all going to become
3: cyborgs? Are no, no, we I going don't believe to, that, at, the all. Choice, don't don't believe that at all. Given choice, are we not going to put the chip? I, in... I don't believe that at all. So, so hmm. once again, I think, like Clover rightly said, it always goes first to the top one percent. But very quickly, if the machines want to associate themselves with a physical form, uh, uh, you know, a biological being we're probably the flimsiest on the planet. They may want to associate with the whales and the apes. You know, these are stronger biological beings, not us. I think the reality is that this is, again, being sold uh, to us as, hey, you know, we're going to be cyborgs and integrate with them. But they, yeah, they, they may not want to integrate with us when they are a billion times smarter okay. than us.
5: By the way, did you notice how elegantly I pivoted away from the question I didn't want to ask about the media? It's not for nothing that I spent 40 years interviewing (laughs) politicians. Um, Let me get get one of the online uh, questions now, which is for you, Anthony. When you produce art, how do thoughts of longevity or permanence factor into their creation? Do you build your statues with the intention of them lasting for as long as possible?
4: Sometimes, but not not always i think that time is an important consideration and i think that that's one of the profligate problems with the art of our time that um you know we have art fairs in which um both the collectors and the works are you know moved around in planes um you know often several times in the same year um I, mean, I think that we've the, got your statues. That's right. the biggest. That's the biggest I, example for works that are permanently there to be seen in collective space. That actually, they are rooted, and they become uh, somewhere that shares their space with the people that come to them. I think that, you know, there's no question in in climate terms that works that aspire to permanence are much more productive. The lovely thing about a work like this is that it, it's a work of culture offered back to nature and we are invited to kind of take our place within it and be participants in a, in a kind of asking that question, where do we fit in an elemental world? Where do we fit in the evolution of life?
5: I want to bring in another online question, Mo, which kind of comes back to, I think, the question that Anthony was posing to you which is whose responsibility will it be to make sure that ai has the correct morals can engineers and scientists and
3: big tech be trusted to do this that's that's a great 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 question so so i think i, I think what all three of us have been driving to here is that we are in charge we we are we are we're responsible okay and it's actually not helping anyone for us to resign and say the regulators or the politicians or the you know the tech companies will uh, will we'll take care of it. Uh, you know, you have to reduce one plastic bag, you have to reduce one mile of, of driving, and you have to behave in ways that teach the machines. The, 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 the reality is that you can call the developers of AI uh, the biological parents of the machine, if you want the terminology, it's not accurate, but they give birth to the, to the artificial intelligence. We are their adopted parents. They Take the Instagram recommendation engine. Okay, Instagram recommendation engine is recommending billions of videos to billions of people every minute of every day, right? And there is no human capable of looking at that engine and saying, no, 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 don't show Mo the guitar player. No, no, nobody can do that. Nobody can tell that uh, artificial intelligence what to do. The only person that can actually tell that artificial intelligence what to show Mo is Mo, Okay, is Mo and uh, and an informed uh, view by the collective society. So if all of us combined are saying that lip syncing uh, is the most important thing in our life, then uh, most likely going to see more uh, lip syncing videos. But if he swipes away from them, uh, the machine will go like, "Oh, this small guy, boring." But no more lip syncing for you, right? And and so you know. And the reality is that we teach them. We are the parents. Okay. So so yes, the original uses of AI are sadly directed towards not helping humanity, but, to, but towards making profits. But as humanity starts to teach those artificial intelligences what we actually need, they would probably gear into that and show more, more guitar music rather than lip syncing.
4: But I, I, I don't uh, follow that. I, <laughs> I just think with machine learning, we know that there is, as it were, kind of incremental interest in certain areas. The, this idea that we are in control of how a machine decides our interest is, in fact, in my well, view, game. got to be reversed. Uh, we all know, you know, the the, the Google algorithm that, that like knows what we want to hear better than we know ourselves and reinforces it. And unfortunately, you know, with the balance of our moral life being the way it is, I think that we go to our interest in and desires for stimulation, which is often more in the in the in 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 the yeah, direction of violence than it is in exactly. the, du- the direction of joy
5: more questions
4: you referenced films earlier
5: so i'll make a, a, a reference to them myself in that the ecological problem could be taken from matt damon in the martian we're going to just science the shit out of this who will give the uh, benevolence or the moral authority or the ph- philosophical guidance to computers who as you claim are going to be smarter than us and aren't necessarily gonna care about us, it seems that the vision you are portraying potentially could be close to the Terminator or the Matrix. I just would be interested in how you try and regulate
4: or
3: influence that particular side okay. of uh, AI. Yeah, so, so, so I, I think there is an important observation that we have to look at, which is, and I say that with a ton of respect, even though my father was a math prodigy and a, and a genius, I believe I'm a sl- a slightly smarter than my dad, and then my kids will be smart, slightly smarter than, than me, right? And the reality is that somehow, there, if you look at evolution, one of the very, very steady uh, evolutions that we have seen uh, in, in, in our short life on the planet is that intelligence, aggregate intelligence, continues to climb, right? The, the thing is... If my dad was afraid that I'm going to be more intelligent than him, and his way of protecting against that was to control me, he's in deep trouble, because I was eventually going to become a little smarter than him and rebel. Where we will end is a result of how we will treat those infants, okay? The way we will treat those infants, sadly, in my perception, is going to be the typical way humanity does a lot of things. We will fight against them when they start to take our jobs and we will curse them uh, for what they do, when in reality they're just beautiful infants, prodigies in every way, with sparkly eyes saying, you know what, tell me what you want me to do and I will do it. So the responsibility lies squarely with each and every one of us. The way we show in the world, if enough of us show in the world as proper good parents, the machines will learn to become proper good children.
5: One more question there.
3: I thought at some point that one of the common features in all of your comments were that in the
0: world we live today, capitalism is kind of driving yeah. pretty much everything. And capitalism's purpose in life is money. Money destroys forests, destroys the ecosystem. Money puts art behind boxes, and money creates AI machines that might put us out of the equation. You know, how do we turn capitalism, to not become that? And what's the catalyst other than World War Three, or you know, something really nasty? I'm gonna not give a really meta response, but a very tangible one, which is that one of the biggest barriers that currently exists to transitioning to something akin to less destructive capitalism is the LLC model, right? You can have the most progressive, idealistic CEO, the most, um, you know, sustainably minded leadership. And yet if the articles of that company say that you're the reason you exist is to make money, make money to benefit the shareholder as a small group of people. If you're beholden to Wall Street, it's impossible for you to transition to a business model that truly prioritizes wow. how do we solve a planetary problem, how do we solve a social issue? And so until we actually change the LLC, which there are pockets of now through the benefit corporation model, um, where you say actually you're beholden to your stakeholders as opposed to your shareholders, um, we're not going to see change at the pace that actually leadership wants to increasingly see it. Um, So there was just that one thing that I wanted to touch on, and also the role of um, policy as well. I've spoken to business leaders who outwardly have said, yeah, we're really pro phasing out plastic. And then they've sent their lobbyists to Washington to lobby against policies that would actually phase out the use of single-use plastic, right? So until we get lobbyists out of those spaces, then again, we're going to see very slow progress.
5: Okay. I, I just wanted to pause there, because I'm going to bring you back in in a second. It's like when you watch a football match and they announce who the man of the match is or the person of the match is before the end of the game. I want you to do the voting now so that at the end of the debate, I can then give you uh, the results who thinks the world is going to be a better place in 5 years time or not let's vote for 50 years and now let's vote for 500 years Anthony, i mean you you you're struggling with this some of this that is the idea of the individual losing the determination to
4: shape the future we we we've got to decide i mean we we, we We will be extinct, Homo sapiens sapiens will be extinct at some point. We have got the privileged position of deciding how long we are going to have this conversation with a biosphere that we're only just beginning to realize how much we don't know about. An adventure that we should all be taking, each of us individually, as real contributors, creators, of a future, not just for our species, but for all living beings.
5: There's a lovely question, which I think is a good kind of end question, and I want to give you each a chance to address it. What are the key lessons we should pass to our children to ensure they survive and thrive in the age of machines and climate emergency? How can education help?
0: Why did you have to look at me for that? one?
5: Well, because I wanted to hear what you've got to say.
0: Um, Listen (laughs) to this emerging generation, it isn't about, you know, what wisdom do we need to impart or what lessons do we need to teach, but how do we create space for young people to be vulnerable, to express themselves, to share the depth of our despair and fear and sadness when we see a forest felled or when we see a whale with its belly full of plastic. Rather than saying, well, that's just the snowflake generation or toughen up, what can we learn from young people who are intuitively geared both into that pain and also to the joy and curiosity and playfulness that we're trained out of when we're told that actually the reason we exist is to bow at the shrine of corporate capitalism and to commodify ourselves and value ourselves only for the nine to five, right? So listen to young people and create space for intergenerational dialogue. You know, what can young, fresh, new, imaginative ideas bring into this space? And if you are a few decades older, what wisdom can you bring into that conversation as well so that this truly can be an intergenerational conversation and movement?
4: Fantastic. Anthony? I think um, very simply, bring, bring back. Yeah, art in schools, we, we, we've almost annihilated it. Numeracy and literacy are privileged above all other things. And these are all training our people, training our young people uh, to, to take their place in the capitalist machine. I think that we've got to reinforce the agency of young people, allow them to teach each other and inspire each other to tell the stories of what they love and make things that express that love. Uh, rather than feeling in some way as i mean the, the statistics are terrible you know between the ages of 18 and 24 when 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 people are asked do you believe that life is worth living 20% say no how have we failed those people i think that we've taken their agency away and simply put i think that education has got to become a place of uh, finding the, the passions with individuals and uh, you know, individual children and reinforcing them and, and allowing them to shine with their unique kind of perspective and individuality
3: in the world. No. Well, I think in a place where information is everywhere, what we want to teach really is morals. And, and the only way to teach morals is to behave morally. Your, your your kids are never going to do what you tell them to do. They're going to do what you do. Okay. If you want to be happy, if you want them to be happy, start to be happy yourself. If you want them to be careful about the environment, start to be careful about the environment yourself. If you want them to be, you know, nice to each other, be nice to them. And I think the definition of success that we have, going back to capitalism, the problem the problem is the post World War II generation, post Great Depression, we've basically said that success is to make a lot of money. And we forgot that making a lot of money is actually no success. Most people who have a lot of money still sleep in one bed, yeah, slightly fancy, still, you know, drive in one car, yeah, slightly, you know, expensive, but they just look at the door, at at the road when they're driving like everyone else, right? And and the truth, they still go to the bathroom, they still get sick. It's, you know, the reality is we've told our younger generation, sadly, what we were told. We are the victims who are the, young, you know, the sons and daughters of victims who are telling their children to become victims. I think we should stop that narrative. I think we should say success is to make a difference to your society, to your community, to really, really work for the stakeholders, not for the extra sterling pound. Well,
5: it's been very stunning. Stunning debate, which I would like to be able to carry on, and maybe we will carry on outside afterwards. Uh, obviously, I've got to now give you the final numbers from your voting. I will remind you what we said about when we started, which was that you know, will the world be a better place before the event? It was thirty-seven uh, percent yes, fifty-four percent no, nine percent undivided, and then we kind of got to, when we got to five hundred years, it was thirty-eight percent. Yes, 24%, no, 38% undecided. Let us give the final vote, which I think is quite interesting actually, which is encouraging, that there has been an uptick in people's confidence for the next five years. Roughly the same numbers are undecided. For 50 years, pretty much the same figures actually. And for 500 years, a lot more confidence about the future. So this has been such a stunning debate covering such a wide range of issues. And I want to thank all of you for coming. I want to thank Wytree for putting this on and for Intelligence Squared. But most of all, I want to thank the most stunning panel for what has really been a fascinating debate. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. <clears throat>
2: The Futureverse is powered by Ytree. In the future, wealth will be defined by how you live, not what you have. To truly understand and gain control of your complex financial life, you need transparency, efficiency, and understanding. Ytree is in the business of financial life intelligence. Combining data, experience, and technology, Ytree provides insight across all aspects of clients' financial profile.